Fierce Women Writing is a partner of Terra Preta Review, which exists to unearth phenomenal writing and art by folks at all stages of their careers. Terra Preta is drawn to writing and art that grows from the trash heap of life, and they're especially interested in work by members of marginalized communities. To read their first issue, and to submit work for consideration, visit terrapretareview.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, a podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, fierce writers. Today's guest is Jenny Bott. Jenny Bott is an Indian-American writer, literary translator, and book critic. Her debut short story collection, Each of Us Killers, is out now with 713 books, and her translation of Doom K2's Greatest Short Stories is out in December 2020 with HarperCollins India. Jenny is the host of a podcast about South Asian literature called Daisy Books. She lives in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. Here's Jenny Bott with an excerpt from her collection of stories, Each of Us Killers, which came out on Tuesday. So I'm going to read from uh, one of the stories from this collection. And let me just real quick set the stage. Um, This collection is filled with stories about working people. And um, they're sort of woven at the intersection of labor and our emotional lives. I mean, that's the tagline. But what that really means is it's about people looking to fulfill their dreams and aspirations through their work. And this particular story is titled Time and Opportunity. And it's about a food stall vendor in Mumbai. And I'll just read two pages real quick here. It's called Time and Opportunity. Now look, I've been at this for more than 45 years. Long before Satish was even an itch in his father's pants. I started with nothing squatting on roadsides, selling roasted chana and peanuts off a gunny sack. They called me Joker because of how my wide smile always stayed on, even when dust, thick as chickpea flour, covered my face and hair. These days, I have a two-by-four fixed food stall with three tables in front, all in a prime expensive location at Parla Station West all paid for with blood, sweat, and don't ask what else. I don't sell 55 varieties of the same thing, but my food is good, my masalas and chutneys are fresh, and I keep things clean. English-speaking college kids, car-driving corporate types, and even a couple of local politicians drool over my special dosas. They send servants from their Juhu penthouse flats to pack up my sambar in their own dabas for their big parties 
where it is drunk like beer, where imported whiskey is poured over dancing girls. But that's a different story. Yes, it is all Allah's good graces that even though there are American pizza and burger restaurants everywhere now, and so many of my colleagues have moved on, I'm still standing here. No. Yesterday's snot-nosed kid is not going to steal from me and get away with it. After I gave him a job, when none of the others wanted him, with his bloodshot eyes and dirty clothes? Satish, I said, here are some decent clothes for you when you're serving my customers and washing their plates. I also give him two meals a day and a hundred rupees just for doing that. Who would be so generous to a Chamar boy with leathery skin, like he was born in one of the hell-like tanneries where his ancestors worked? Now, Arif, who helps me with the cooking, is my neighbor's sister's son, and like me, an old Malakpate lad. He tells me he saw Satish stealing my money. Ya Allah, the audacity. Like a wild pup, he bites the hand that feeds him. So today, I will lay a trap for the crook. If he tries again, I will catch him red-handed. Then see what I do to him. Here he comes, late again. He looks shiftily at everyone, as if he has rare treasures hidden on his person. No, he's never shown up drunk, like a couple of boys I had before. But he acts like, even if you handed him the world on a gold platter, it would not be good enough. As if showing a friendly smile or some respect toward his elders is a heavier tax than he is willing to pay. I told him to get a mobile, so he could call me if he's going to be late. But will he listen? Says he has no need to waste his money on unnecessary toys. What's he saving it all for then? To buy the Taj Mahal? Hey, Satish, I yell. Move quick, quick. You're not at a funeral. The lunch crowd is going to start. Wipe down the tables and the counter. Put out the spoon holders. And don't break any of the spoons again. I'll take it out of your pay. He looks slant through hooded eyes and says, That plastic keeps getting thinner on those spoons of yours. Your supplier is cheating you. If they break, it's not my fault. Then he doesn't even wait for my reply, but disappears behind the stall to get the mop and bucket. You see the kind of badmashi I'm dealing with here? And you're thinking, why does Nawaz Bhai need to stoop to setting traps like he's hunting mice? Why can't I just get rid of Satish, given his lateness, fights with Arif, his sharp tongue with me, and sometimes our customers. These are all justification enough for Allah to forgive me. But I want to confront him about the stealing. I want to shove the evidence under his nose and show him that Nawaz Bhai is nobody's fool, that I cannot be cheated by any yesterday's kid so easily. I pride myself on knowing people, especially the ones I hire. All these years of working on Mumbai streets, and no one has, thank Allah, stolen from me. But this good-for-nothing? 
not just here, but back in Malakpet, people will be talking about how a kid steals from Nawaz Bhai in broad daylight. Because sure as anything, Arif has told his family, and they have told my family, and they will all say that Nawaz Bhai thinks he's such a big shot, a kid takes money from him, and he's clueless. So when I catch Satish taking my money, I will kick his backside so hard that he will find himself lying on the tracks of Platform 6. Thank you so much for sharing that excerpt from Each of Us Killers. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Jenny, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? So um, I'm best at writing in the early morning when my brain isn't, you know, already snagging on stuff for my to-do list or messages or emails or social media. Um, after I left my corporate career to focus on my writing and, and write this book, uh, I followed Julia Cameron's morning pages discipline. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks, I felt like I was just writing a lot of drivel. But then, you know, it's it's a kind of breakthrough that happens when you have this practice of writing, you know, 15 pages a day every morning or, you know, and so I was able to start writing more productively. And that's kind of the approach that I took for writing most of this book of mine. Um, that said, I can't have noise or music when I'm writing. So I need quiet. And maybe again, that's why the early morning solitude uh, works for me. I feel like when I did the morning pages, it was like, three pages mm. you really did 15 I did I yeah I would just set my timer and I would just like go um but I think it's also related to because I'm I'm a, um, I've been writing my like a daily journal for since I was a teenager really and so I think I'm used to that and so yeah I, I would do 10 to 15 pages but as I said not everything was usable or you know <laughs> good information but it was just the practice of sitting down and doing it why do you write? So primarily, I think my writing has always been about exploring something I don't understand fully. And as I was just saying, I, I've been a daily journal writer since my teens. And that journaling also began with the same need, you know, to make sense of just the insane world around. You can imagine as a teenager how things would be everything was so intense and everything was confusing and everything was a bit much. And so that whole need to make sense and to unravel my own chaotic thoughts about it, that's what prompted me to be a journal writer and I still do it today. And so that kind of then just, you know, translated into other writing that I, that I got into. So for me, that's still my most important driver whether I'm doing fiction, nonfiction, or book reviews. And um, I'm also a literary translator, but that part is more because of my love of language. And I love words from other languages and, you know, how, how they can mean so many different things and the texture. And so, I mean, all of that, I think, plays into all, you know, plays across all of my writing. Uh, but certainly it's always been about trying to understand something. What are your best writing tips? Okay, yeah. So these, I get asked this a lot because I also teach um, from time to time, just workshops. So I have five very quick ones. Okay. So the first one is something I came across some years ago 
I don't know where, but it's from Diane Williams. And she wrote that we should try to write the things that we cannot or do not speak about. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I love her short stories. And so for me, there isn't much point to a short story if that's, if it doesn't do a little bit of that. And certainly I tried to do that with my own collection. Um, the second one is, you know, you get this advice a lot, right? Always begin with the action in Medias Res. And that's fine. But for me, it's about the point of no return, where my protagonist has done or said something that they can't take back. And so we're right in the thick of it then, right? And so that gets me writing because I want to know how they're going to get out of their mess. So I always say start at the point of no return. And then with fiction, I'll ask myself, what would push a particular scene into some unexpected territory? And I don't mean implausible, um, but unexpected. And then I try to lean into that as far as I can in my early drafts. Of course, I'll edit a lot of it later. But just that leaning into that gives you a little freedom to kind of go places you might not let yourself go otherwise. Um, and the fourth one I'll say is, I, this work, this is for me. I know it's not for everyone, but I don't like to talk much about my current writing with others because I want to save all that emotional and cognitive energy for the work. And I know there's going to be plenty of time after, you know, when you're submitting the work or getting it edited, workshopped or whatever to talk about it. But at the time of writing, I think saving all that energy and intensity and emotion for the work is better. And then the last thing is uh, something I had a writing instructor say to me once, um, and this was Jane Brocks, who wrote non oh, she's beautiful nonfiction memoir, 5,000 Days Like This. Uh, and I took a workshop with her at um, Third Coast back in, I'm trying to think, 2000 or 2001. And um, she said that a story is as much about what's left unsaid as it is about what's said. And so I, I take that and in turn I tell sometimes, you know, I tell folks in my workshops, text matters, subtext matters even more. And what's not on the page is often more telling than the latter two combined. And so be very aware of what you're leaving off the page as much as what you're putting on the page. I find that I also um, have this impulse to keep what I'm currently writing close to my mm. heart. And and so I really appreciate that you mentioned that. I feel like um, like that isn't talked about a lot. Like people are always asking you, what are you writing? What are you writing? And it's it can be hard to just kind of say like, ah, I don't really feel like talking about it. Right. <laughs> you know, but the funny thing is, you, you, you know, to your point, especially when you have one book coming out people are always going to ask that and so it's very hard to kind of negotiate you know what do you say how much do you tell them yeah what are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block yeah you know um it, it's it's difficult because up till very recently I used to think that there's no such thing and the reason is because for me my journaling practice is everything if I'm stuck with a writing project I go to my journal and use it as a rough notebook. I'll just keep asking myself, what is it I'm trying to say here? 
And I'll keep trying to answer that question in different ways so that I'm getting more and more specific, you know, till I've got something that makes me sit up with surprise. And then I know, okay, yeah, that's what I want to do. But I'll tell you, this year, so many of my writers, writing friends, and some of them are pretty well known and have several books, have talked about writer's block, right, because of what's going on, everything that's going on in the world. And I honestly, I don't have a really good answer except for, as I said, what works for me, which is my journaling. So every time I'm stuck, I'll go to my journal and I'll start asking that question. What am I trying to say? What do I want to say? Or what's bothering me today? What's the thing that's really just, you know, so you kind of just get the words going and then keep writing till something jumps up, it jumps out at you. So you use your journal as finding a way yes, in. exactly. Yeah. What about editing and revising tips? Yeah. So I keep a checklist of my own writing ticks and tips. And these are things that I, you know, uh, we all have our writing ticks, right? And so I'll make sure that I've got, every time I finish a piece of work, when I'm in the editing phase, I'll go and check that. And sometimes, I mean, that, that, that should be an evolving living checklist because you're going to have new things to add and things to take off. So I, I say keep a checklist. That's always good. The second thing I say is read your work out loud because for me, that really does work. When I read it out loud, I can get the sense of the cadence, the language, and I can see things missing. So, it, you know, that helps. And then uh, the third is, again, a fairly common one that people suggest and it works for me which is to leave the work to breathe for a few days after finishing a draft so that I can step away and you know come back with a fresh perspective and look at it properly did you say writing ticks ticks yes ticks what are some examples of those for listeners who might not be so familiar so yeah like you know we all we all have certain things um I I used to use the word actually uh, a lot, you know, in dialogue, where I'd have one person say to another, use that word actually. And I, a lot of times I feel like, well, that's a filler word. What does it mean? It doesn't, it's not necessary. So there might be, you know, filler words like that that show up in writing. Um, another one is uh, somebody likes to use, somebody just tweeted this the other day, one of my writer friends, that whenever they're talking about characters eating, they tend to use the word munch. Even though they don't use that word in real life when they're talking to people, but for whatever reason, (laughs) (laughs) munch a lot. (laughs) So, you know, if if that was me, that would go, uh, you know, on my ticks list for me to make sure I'm editing that out. Yeah. For me, I tend to start a lot of sentences in dialogue with so mm-hmm. so that's one that I look yeah, for <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. can you estimate your submission to publication ratio yeah you know uh so I I did submit a lot of short stories uh before I put a few of them together in in this collection and I've been I think I've been incredibly lucky because all the ones that I submitted were eventually accepted some took one to two years to get accepted and i know one story that eventually got taken you know by amazon's day one journal 
where Morgan Parker was the editor at the time, and I was just so grateful for her um, accepting it. But that story took over a year, and it went to several big places and got good feedback, and then it didn't go anywhere, and then Morgan took it. So uh, for me, I've been lucky. Um, I will say that uh, there's one short story I started submitting uh, beginning of last year, and it's really the opening to my current work-in-progress novel, and so that one, I can see why the feedback I'm getting is, oh, you know, it's I love it, and I love the this part and that part, but something's missing, and can you fill in the gap? And I know what's missing. What's missing is the next chapter of the novel. <laughs> so I, I kind of stopped submitting it. It's probably not a short story. So, But otherwise, I've been pretty lucky, and, you know, uh, with the individual short stories. Um, and I think, I, I would say the one reason I'm not saying it's because I'm so great or anything, but I do a lot of research. I will make sure that when I submit, um, I have a process, right? I mean, I have my top three magazines I'd like to get a particular story into because I know that that's the kind of work that they publish. Um, and then if I don't get there, then I go to the next tier. And then, so I, I'm very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very precise in how I'm targeting where I submit. Um, and, and that could be why the amount of homework I tend to do before I submit, that could be one big reason why they get accepted eventually. Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? My two perennial uh, favorites that I recommend to most people uh, the first is, uh, you know, Toni Morrison, because the way she wove together nuances and layers and language and musicality, I think every one of her novels, or, or even her essays, you know, each one is a masterclass, and it's worth rereading many times over. And I teach a couple of her novels sometimes in workshops, so I just love her work. And then Zadie Smith, for me, because of the amazing ways that She'll connect certain dots in, in her essays, particularly. I, I like her fiction a lot too, but her essays to me are fascinating. Uh, you know, just to follow the threads of her thoughts and see where they take me. There's a, there's a clarity of vision and it's not so easy to get there these days, you know, in our distracted 24 seven social media. And uh, I know she stays off social media, so that might be one reason, but I just love her essays, and um, those are the two I would certainly recommend to everyone. And where can listeners find you online? Yeah, so I I do have a website. It's just jennybatwriter.com, and I spend most of my time on Twitter. I'm not much on Facebook. I try to do Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at um, at jennybat. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at jennybat0. And that's about it. I mean, Facebook is very, very sparse in my case. So, Thank you for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Sarah, and I truly do enjoy the podcast. So I, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for putting Jenny's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. 
So my writing prompts generally come from one of three things. Either an object memory, where I take an object and then free write about my memories about it. Or a news headline, something intriguing and fresh and different. Or an image. It's just an unusual image that I've spotted online somewhere or from my own um, archives. So I, I would say take any one of these and free write nonstop for about 10 to 15 minutes. There will always be something interesting that will emerge. Just one or two lines, maybe. But that will give the kernel of something new that's worth expanding on. The idea of writing ticks that Jenny introduced on this episode is a handy editing tool. What are the ticks that find their way into your work? Maybe it's packing a sentence full of adverbs instead of choosing verbs carefully. Or maybe you're like me and your characters all say so at the beginning of their sentences. I'd guess that a read-through with a reliable writing friend might help you identify some of your ticks so that you can start editing them out early. If listening to the podcast has been helpful in your writing practice, become a supporter on my website. With a recurring monthly contribution of as little as $2, you can help me ensure that these interviews continue to happen. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Women Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.